from the west coast of America and the front lines of American healthcare, I'm the Dashing Doctor, here with the Dashing MD podcast, streaming at feeds.feedburner.com backslash dashingmd, available at the blog dashingmd.blogspot.com, available off iTunes, just search for Dashing MD. Our email address, as always, dashingmd at yahoo.com. However you found us, welcome to the Dashing MD podcast and to episode 16. Episode 16, Questions You Should Ask. Well, let's start off this episode with uh, a couple of quick shout-outs, shall we? Um, First, I'd like to read you an email that I got from, well, we'll call her Denise. She asks to have her name disguised and uh, as an anonymous podcast where you will never know my identity and I will never reveal yours unless specifically asked to, we'll call her Denise. And Denise writes, Dear Dashing MD, I haven't listened to many of your podcasts yet, but I'm so glad I've found you. Thank you so much for sharing your world and your point of view with us for crossing that barrier. What you're doing is something seriously lacking in the medical profession and very much needed. I'll try to cross the barrier in the other direction. I've recently had an experience that's radically changed the way I view doctors. It should have been for the worse, but there's no way I can see it that way. In November, I went into the hospital with a fracture. Things went wrong over a very busy weekend. I was not seen, complications developed, and have been ongoing. Forgive me for not being more specific, but it isn't important to the story anyway. I should be blaming the doctors for not coming to see me post-op. I should be blaming those that did come for not diagnosing the complications and letting them develop. I should be blaming them for not prescribing antibiotics afterward, but I can't. I should be furious at the injustice of it all. I should be saying, why me? But I'm not. Instead, I've learned some really valuable lessons about what it means to be human. Now, I've seen that doctors are allowed to be humans, to have emotions, to make mistakes and be forgiven. I'm really inspired. I'm ready to be one. I was previously holding off going to medical school because I was afraid of the responsibility that comes with being a doctor. But now I see that only the most inexperienced registrars are afraid to ask for help. Surgeons consult each other all the time, and that's the way it should be. You're not supposed to shoulder that burden all by yourself. Another reason I didn't want to be a doctor is that I was afraid of being too cold and impersonal. Now I've seen the alternative. You said something along the lines of, doctors don't have the time to be there and hold hands. I'm not entirely certain about that. I've had interactions with many doctors during this experience. My respect for them doesn't rank with who was and wasn't responsible for the lack of communication that allowed things to go wrong, nor does it rank with who was the most senior who operated on me and solved the problems. It ranks with who took the time out to reassure me. I think the most important role of the doctor is to control fear. Without fear, things can heal. The doctor has the power of information. We patients thrive on information even if it's the same information over again. Also, just knowing that someone out there is keeping track of you so you don't get lost in the system, that means the world. And metaphors aside, hand-holding itself is so important. Just touch. In that big, sterile, impersonal place, a hand on the shoulder just means so much. It seems to me that there are two types of doctors, the ones who give out their mobile phone numbers and those who don't. I hope I'll be one who does. I have no idea how they cope with the emotional burden they take from each patient they engage with, but I'm going to have to find out. The hospital system wouldn't function without them. If they let me become a doctor, I pledge to devote my life to the battle against lack of communication. Anyway, I can't wait to hear more of your podcasts. I know there will be some answers there. Thank you, Denise. Well, 
Denise, thank you so much for this email. I really, I think it speaks to a bunch of really important issues. First of all, this issue of choosing not to blame your physicians. I mean, I think that's very bold of you and not something that we see a lot of. I think you, uh, just reading between the lines and some of your uh, terminology, I'm guessing you're not in the United States and so not in the most litigious nation in the world. But even so, um, I think it's it's very reassuring to me as a physician that there are people out there who understand that medicine is an extraordinarily complicated system and that the people who are in it are doing the best they can, but that uh, mistakes will happen, people will be injured by them, um, and the stakes are so high that I think people often lose sight of that fact and want to believe that medicine will always be perfect, and it won't. And I'm sorry that you paid the price for that, but I think you show great wisdom in understanding that it probably wasn't personal. Um, this issue of doctors being cold and impersonal, I, I agree with you completely. I, I think that we as physicians are taught so much to be scientists that we lose track of our sort of role as uh, members almost of a priesthood, of a spiritual healing body whose role is much in health can be in putting a hand on your shoulder as it can be in prescribing you a beta blocker. And again, I think this speaks so much to the system that that I think medicine does not necessarily attract those people or retain those people who feel that way, who, who are the humanists. I mean, we do not select when we pick who will become a, a medical student and who will become a resident. We don't look so much for that humanistic side. We look at how many research papers you've published and where you've worked in a lab and what personal accomplishments you can lay claim to. And I think that too much attracts the self-interested scientist uh, and does not welcome with open arms the way it should the humanist, the person who is interested in other people and in how other people interact with them and with the world. Um, you know, I, I don't give out my home phone number. I don't know that it would help if I did. I mean, I think presence is what matters and being present in the hospital was what matters. And at least in my field at this level of training, being available to people 24 hours a day, seven days a week is sort of impossible to imagine. I mean, I think that I have to be able to leave it at the door and walk away, um, just for my own sanity. But I, I, I admire your sentiment, and I, uh, and I hope that you are able to find a way to make that work for you. Um, and thanks so much for writing. I really, again, I can't tell you how wonderful it is to get your emails in this podcast. It's dashingmd at yahoo.com is the email address. And every email that I get, I love to just read on, out to everybody. And I will post this uh, letter on the blog as well, um, dashingmd.blogspot.com, so that you all can read it. It really is worth sort of taking some time to read through this uh, really wonderful perspective that Denise has sent us. I'd also like to read uh, quickly just a a note from another physician blogger out there. Um, This is Dr. Anonymous, who blogs at dranonymous.com, who says, Hi there, I found your podcast via iTunes and then found your blogspot page. Enjoyed your podcast very much. It looks like you've developed quite a following from what you've been saying. 
I have a text blog and I've been dabbling a little bit into podcasting. I even mentioned your podcast in my little audio blog. I'm looking forward to hearing more from you. I haven't quite listened to all your podcasts yet, but I'm working on it. I invite you to my text blog and perhaps to check out my blogcast as well. Good luck to you in your residency training. You'll quickly figure out what kind of doctor I am just by glancing at my blog. Keep up the great work. And that's from Dr. Anonymous. And I, I read this both because I, I really do, I'm serious about, you know, reading the emails that I get from all of you because I, they, I think they contribute so much to what this blog is about. And also because I think this is a great introduction to something I'm going to try to do uh, on the site, which is to link to other interesting books and uh, blogs and other things that you guys make me aware of or that I find find out out there. So if, if there's anything you're listening to or anything you're reading that you think contributes to this conversation, please just do let me know and I will put up a link on my blog and hopefully that blog can start to act as a little bit of a central repository. Um, I'm going to put up links there to some books um, that I found really formative when I was thinking about becoming a doctor, some um, things that sort of helped shape my view of medicine. Um, so look for those on the blog. That's dashingmd.blogspot.com. Um, and uh, I'll put up a link to Dr. Anonymous's blog, which is actually wonderful. It's a, a real comprehensive blog that looks at, you know, sort of talks about medicine and life and all sorts of stuff. Um, all right, now let's get into the down and dirty of the podcast. Um, two things I want to do today. Uh, one, I just, because there have been some big issues out there on the news wires recently, just wanted to sort of touch on those quickly, just my own two cents on a couple things that have been in the news lately. Uh, the first is Tony Snow, the, uh, press director for, uh, President Bush in the White House, announcing that he had, um, a small growth in his abdomen that he was taken to surgery for, and they removed that, and then they found that he had a little nodule of cancer, not just in his pelvis, but uh, also um, the report was initially that it was in his liver, and then they sort of uh, threw out this story that no, 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 it wasn't in his liver, it was on his liver, and this was cast as being like a good news kind of story, um, when in reality, uh, colon cancer, which is what Presumably this is, he'd had colon cancer and was resected, and presumably this is a recurrence of that. Um, you know, isolated metastasis to the liver is is actually not as bad a thing as a distant metastasis or a metastasis somewhere outside of the liver. Um, and having this growth, both kind of free-floating in his pelvis and, and a tumor on his liver implies to me um, from, and again, I'm just reading press reports and sort of parsing them through my own filters, um, implies to me that he has uh, peritoneal uh, metastasis, meaning that he's got sort of tumor throughout his abdominal cavity. That actually is a much worse thing to have than a uh, isolated tumor in his liver. And um, I think it's interesting to see how the press has tried to sort of spin this using some sort of conventional wisdom things like, oh, well, it's not in the organ. It must not be bad. I think uh, this poor gentleman uh, has, a, has a bad disease. Um, I wish him well in working through it, um, and uh, we'll see where the story develops. The other issue, uh, of course, yesterday, um, John Corzine, uh, governor of New Jersey, was in a big car accident, and uh, initially uh, the press reports on that were interesting as well. The sort of spin coming out of it was, oh, you know, he's on a breathing tube because he had some pain, because he had some rib fractures, you know, 
oh, and by the way, he had a sternal fracture, and oh, and by the way, he had a lumbar fracture, and oh, but the really big deal is that he's got a fracture in his leg. And it's interesting. I mean, I've seen this injury pattern before, and there's some things about it that don't totally make sense from the way that the press is publishing it. I mean, he's got bilateral rib fractures. What I'd want to know is, does he have uh, pneumothoraces? Did he need to get chest tubes put in to release uh, pressure outside of his lungs from air leaking outside of his lungs and compressing them? Sternal fractures are, are a very bad injury and can cause a lot of problems with cardiac function. They can really delay recovery because they're very painful and the sternum is slow to heal. Uh, and then what sounds like he's got a very bad femur fracture. There's no mention of any intra-abdominal injuries, which sounds extraordinary given the, the mechanism of the accident um, in which uh, a guardrail, it sounds like, entered the vehicle and the governor who was unrestrained was sort of thrown from the front seat into the back seat at the end of a guardrail. I had a guy come into the emergency room um, like this, and I think I even talk about it in one of my ER podcasts, the ER Diaries, um, but uh, it's, it's amazing the force uh, that can be <laughs> exerted on a person from this. And it's incredible, honestly, uh, reading about how it worked, that, that he survived at all. Um, I think it's a testament to the value of seatbelts that he was the one unbelted passenger in the car, and he was the one who was the most injured. So a couple news wire elements. We'll keep an eye on those, and I'll let you know my thoughts. Please let me know yours as well. Um, oh, and uh, just a couple quick technical issues on the blog. Um, first, some people have taken the time to write reviews on iTunes, uh, which I greatly appreciate, and they've been very kind about them. One of them pointed out that this blog is actually coming up as a video podcast. I realize there's a, just a settings issue on the on the compressor that I'm using, and I'll fix that for this podcast and all podcasts going forward. If, if you've been looking for pictures of me, uh, you won't find them. This is a purely audio blog. And a... Uh, a shout out to Achilles 200 and to Slicka who uh, who left those uh, very kind reviews on iTunes. So now to the the meat of the podcast. We're quite a few minutes in. Sorry if you've been waiting to get to this part, but this is um, this is I think I don't know. This is my first public service podcast, and I I need to preface this I think with the usual disclaimers. You know I am an anonymous person broadcasting to you anonymously. I'm not the sort of person from whom you should take trusted medical advice. Um, you don't know me from Adam. You don't know if I really am a doctor. Don't, you know, take these things for what they're worth and, and use them for what they're worth. Uh, but know that uh, nothing substitutes for a face-to-face -face meeting with your very own physician. We live in the most litigious country on earth, so I have to say that. Now, um, that said... One thing that has really struck me as I've become a physician and been a surgical resident is seeing how much sort of behind the scenes goes on that uh, I think if patients knew about, they would it would change the way they made their decisions to have surgery or to undergo sort of whatever hospitalization they've chosen to undergo. Um, and I know like, recently my father uh, decided that he wanted to have surgery, just an elective, quick, simple elective procedure, um, really one of the most common general surgery procedures that is done, and uh, a very straightforward day surgery. And uh, and even that, like I, you know, when he sort of decided to do that, I was like, okay, well, here are the questions that I think you need to ask your doctor um, that 
that no one ever asks us. I mean, I think that, and if they did, I think they'd be surprised by the answers. I think we aren't asked because people take things for granted and, um, and maybe they shouldn't. So these are the questions I would ask. And I will put these questions up on the blog too, just so that you have them in quick and easy written form. Um, so you go to your surgeon or your doctor and you're going to be admitted to the hospital. I, I think that before you decide that you should have surgery with this person, there's some essential things to know. First, find out if your doctor is going to be there while you're in the hospital. Our doctors here, uh, you know, at a major academic center, uh, go off to meetings all the time. And it is not at all uncommon for them to do a major surgery on someone and then leave town for a week, um, leaving them in the hands of someone that you haven't met. So find out what your doctor, if they're going to be doing your surgery, are they going to be around to round on you? The other question is, are they going to round on you? Are you going to see them every day? I sort of assumed in medical school that that was a guarantee, you know, because where I trained in medical school, the physicians went around and saw all their patients every day. Where I am now, that is not done. Um, You are not guaranteed to see your doctor every day. Um, If you're doing well and you're on the floor and, um, you know, you may not actually see them at all. I mean, you, you, we have patients who come in go into the operating room, their attending comes in after they've had their general anesthesia, leaves before they wake up, and goes and talks to their family, but may not actually come and see them in their room while they're there. I think it's terrible. I mean, I think it's absolutely reprehensible, but it's a reality. So ask your doctor if they're going to be there and seeing you every day, because the residents are good. And I mean, I like to think we do a nice job on the floor and we talk to the attendings, we tell them how people are doing and they sort of direct your care from afar. But I think that there's nothing quite the same as having your doctor, your attending physician, the responsible person come to see you every day. Um, when is your surgery going to be? How much is your doctor operating? Are you going to be the first case in the morning when they're bright and fresh? Or are you going to be their fifth case and start at 10 p.m.? Because we have that sometimes here as well. I mean, doctors will, some of our attendings who have packed schedules and, and a lot of cases to do, will start cases at 10 or 11 p.m. that go overnight. And I don't care how good they are or how good they say they are. I wouldn't want any family member of mine getting put on as fifth case for the day. I think you want to be you know, first or second through the day. And, and after that, I think you, you increase your risk of having a, a complication because people are just tired. Um, say you're going to go to the ICU. So you're having a case where you know you're going to go to the ICU. I think you need to ask some questions about that. If the ICU is uh, an open ICU or a closed ICU, what that means is um, will your attending surgeon also coordinate your critical care, which is sort of your ICU level care while you're there, or will it, that be coordinated by a team of dedicated critical care specialists? And I would argue that if your surgeon is going to be taking care of you in the ICU, you want some assurances that there are going to be critical care certified physicians in the ICU available 24 hours a day, and that you don't want to have your surgical attending, the person who's doing the operation, taking care of in the ICU. These are very different specialties um, with very different literatures and very different views in patient care, and I think that it's become very clear to me that uh, just because someone's very good at technically in the operating room, very good at the surgery, does not mean that they're going to be up to speed on the latest in critical care and ICU management, which is a vastly complicated field that is 
evolving extremely rapidly. And I think to see sort of some of the patients that we have, we have both closed and open units. And I, I think on the open units where the attendings are taking care of patients in the ICUs as their ICU attending, as well as their surgeon, um, I, th- I think they're, you know, they're five or 10 years behind in sort of the latest in thoughts and management and the latest evidence in what's right and wrong. And, and it can be very difficult because we are often called to sort of asked to do things that, you know, are evidence-based closed unit experience where we work with critical care trained professionals who just do ICU care, um, tells us that absolutely under no circumstances we should do. And, and we, it, it creates a tremendous conflict among the residents, I know. Um, and I think, you know, it does not contribute to good patient care for them to not be getting the most up-to-date um, evidence-based medicine. They're getting treated based on how the attending was trained, and that could have been 10 or 15 years ago, and they aren't necessarily keeping up. Uh, other questions in the ICU, what's your nurse-to-patient ratio? Are you going to have a one-to-one nurse? And this is important on the floor, too. In the ICU, you know, one-to-one or one-to-two uh, patients per nurse, I think, is reasonable. And beyond that, I think, is, is not. Um, on the floors, what's the nursing ratio? How many patients are your nurses going to have during the day and at night? Um, and it's a huge issue in staffing now. And I think, you know, uh, we see a lot of times when I'm bringing people up to the units from the floors, it's because they didn't have enough nursing staff on the floor to recognize problems early and correct them early. And so we get called for big emergencies because people are sort of allowed to sit in there and haven't been taken care of adequately. Another issue, uh, how many of these cases has your attending done? You know, And I think surgeons will tell you that if they have people they know who are getting surgery, they will go to the person who has done the most operations like this that they can find. And I think that it seems like it's always sort of like the less educated, uh, less in-tune patients who get assigned to the new attendings who haven't done a lot of these cases and need to sort of get their numbers up. But it always seems like there's a little bit of uh, duplicity. Well, I don't know if the duplicity is the right word, but you know, there's always when when you ask an attending how many of these cases they've done, you know, they'll give you a number. I think you should ask them again how many of these cases they've done as the attending surgeon, because I think a lot of people, when they're asked how many of these cases they've done, list the cases they did during their residency when they were learning how to do it and they were not the person in charge. And I would want to know how many cases my attending surgeon has done as the person responsible in the room making all the decisions because that's a I think you'll find a very different number in people who are younger who are freshly trained and as somebody who is going to have to have patients find patients do operations on them as attendings um, when I'm a fresh doctor I think you know I'm sort of shooting, shooting myself in the foot here but I think you need to you know I think it's patients right to sort of know that and hopefully you know they'll find other winning attributes in me that you know the fact that I haven't done a huge number of these cases you know I'm a nice guy and I I clearly have their best interests at heart and all these things but uh, but I want them to be able to know that and I don't want it to come up later like oh you told us that you've done all this many cases and it turns out that you haven't um, so I think I you know I want to be honest about that and I think any doctor that you go to should be honest about that and then there's some just questions that I would ask about your basic care um, that I would remind your physician of. Um, and there's just some basic housekeeping things that get missed a lot, but which are, I think, really important. 
and those are uh, are you getting uh, prophylaxis for DVTs? DVTs, as you remember, deep venous thrombosis of this issue that's come up with Dick Cheney recently, where he was on a, sat on a plane for a long time and developed a thrombus in his leg, which has the potential to break off and go into his lungs, causing what's called a pulmonary embolism, which is actually a, a fairly fatal condition, at least potentially. And uh, DVT prophylaxis is uh, something we give to people in the hospital uh, to prevent DVTs, which which people get when they're laying around in bed or laying on the operating table, um, and their venous circulation isn't all that it could be. You should be getting some sort of DVT prophylaxis, whether that's uh, just little squeezer boots on your feet or your calves, or whether it's heparin or Lovenox injections. Just be sure that you're getting it. Um, are you getting antibiotics before your operation? I think that you should ask your surgeon and ask your your anesthesiologist as before your surgery starts whether they have your antibiotics selected. And if you have an antibiotic allergy, you should make that very, very clear and ask them what they're using and whether that's going to interfere with your antibiotic allergy. Um, again, it's one of these very simple things that kind of gets missed along the line. It's a new benchmark for how well hospitals do as, as systems is to see how many people are getting these things in and around the time of their operation. But you should be proactive about asking for those. And beta blockers. You know, they're not for everyone, but a lot of people, particularly older patients or people with heart conditions, should be getting beta blocked around the time of their uh, operation, meaning they should be getting metoprolol or atenolol or one of these beta-blocking medications to sort of control their heart rate and prevent perioperative uh, myocardial infarctions or heart attacks. Uh, they're very easy to forget. I know that, uh, you know, I personally have, um, you know, not always remembered that people should be on their beta-blocker. And, you know, hopefully there's a system in place that will remind you. The pharmacists will check and your senior residents will check and the attendings will check. But I think patient responsibility is paramount. And I think you, you know, it's your body, it's your health. You should take responsibility for it. Those are my list of uh, things that just sort of came up off the top of my head of things that you should worry about. So attending presence um, during your perioperative time, during your postoperative recovery, will they be rounding with you? What's the staffing going to be like from a nursing point of view? What's the staffing going to be like from a resident point of view too? Um, I was, as an intern, was the only surgery resident in-house for the cardiothoracic surgery service on Sundays. And I think, honestly, frankly, I can tell you that was dangerous. Um, who's going to be around? Who is going to be around when you're on, needing your care? Are there going to be senior-level people in the hospital when you're recovering? I think that's a very valuable question to ask. What's your physician's experiences in attending, and what's their caseload? When is your case going to be going during the day? Or what sort of prophylactic measures do they have planned to take place, and are they implementing them? Are they giving you your DVT prophylaxis, your antibiotics, and your beta blockers? I think knowing those things will empower you, and I think it will make your team impressed with your knowledge and your willingness to take care of your own health. I think we appreciate when people do that, um, and, and we deserve to be reminded um, that people are keeping track of whether or not we are keeping track of what we need to be keeping track of. Those are my thoughts. Uh, if you have your own thoughts on this, things you wish people would have known, please contribute them to the podcast or the blog, dashingmd at yahoo.com. Of course, the, uh, the podcast is subscribable at feeds.feedburner.com backslash dashingmd or on iTunes. Uh, just search for dashingmd or from any number of these podcast directories that keep springing up out there 
Send me your thoughts, send me your links, send me your ideas for ways to make this podcast more interesting, relevant, and useful to you. Um, In the meantime, I look forward to coming back in the next week or two with episode 17, topic as yet undetermined, Um, but hopefully it'll be fun for all of us. Have a great weekend. Take care.